scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, and chapter 4, verse 1. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The word of the Lord. So for those of you that were with us uh, last week, uh, we started a, uh, just a really short series, uh, which was really just last week and this week, uh, taking a look at who we are as a church to give us a little bit of an orientation on who we are and the kinds of things uh, that, are, that matter to us. And we've done so by uh, considering our vision to be a church that is both in and for East Harlem that we might uh, both know and show the love of God in Christ. Now, last week, we took a look at what we mean by knowing the love of Christ uh, this idea that we must remember that we are sinners that are saved by grace, that God has made us uh, a new people for those who are in Christ, and that this love, it shapes us, it molds us, it transforms us, uh, and that we must consistently and constantly be reminded of the truths, uh, particularly the truths that we've seen uh, in Ephesians 1 through 3. And now, we haven't done a full series and deep dive into the book of Ephesians. We certainly could. Um, but what we've seen so far in the book of Ephesians is that Ephesians is essentially split up into two major sections. First, uh, chapters 1 through 3 really unpacks the great love of Christ um, and by showing what he has accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, and for those who have faith in Christ, uh, there is renewal and restoration and forgiveness. Uh, there is uh, resurrection life that is given to those in Jesus. And then in uh, Ephesians 3, the passage that we just read, uh, God then, or I'm sorry, Paul then prays that the Ephesians might know and experience the endless depths of Christ's love. And that is what our hope and our prayer is as a church, that we would be a place where people experience the endless depths of, the Christ, of Christ's love. However, immediately after this great theological treatise of chapters 1 through 3, in chapter 4, Paul makes a major pivot where he says, Therefore, I urge you, in light, or I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I find that interesting that Paul does not find it sufficient that the Ephesians simply know the love of Christ. Rather, he also insists that it then be revealed in the way that they live their lives. And he goes on to show many of the different ways that it, the gospel ought to impact 
their lives. And again, we, we aren't going through all the different things that Paul addresses, but he addresses a number of things in, ver- in chapters 4 through 6. Now this we, we clearly see in the book of Ephesians, and we could show a lot of the ways that Paul expects the gospel to impact our lives from the book of Ephesians. However, what I want to do is actually take a wider view in Scripture, because what we see is that the work of Jesus, the gospel message, this love that we know of and we speak of, that this love actually impacts everything. And it, it ends up shaping and forming everything, which dramatically informs what it means for Christians to live a life worthy of the calling that they have received. And so what I want to do, what I want us to see today is the extent to which the gospel, the redemption found in Jesus impacts everything. And I want to do this in understanding this redemption found in Jesus by considering actually the main way that Jesus understood his work the main way that Jesus defined the gospel, and that specifically is through the concept of the kingdom of God. For understanding uh, what the kingdom of God is, is actually to understand the way that Jesus understood why he came and what he came to accomplish. And so I want to do that by looking at several things together with you. First, I want to take a look at the nature of the kingdom of God. Then we're going to look at the scope of that kingdom And then finally, we're going to see how we can then show that kingdom, okay? So the nature of it, the scope of it, and then how we can show it. Uh, So first, the the nature of the kingdom. Uh, Rhetorically, you do not need to actually answer this question, but if I were to ask the question, what has Christ accomplished in his life, his death, in his resurrection? What is the gospel? How might you define that? Just think about that for a moment. Uh, Because I think the typical and certainly correct answer would be to say that Jesus came to save sinners or that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And this is right. Those are good and true answers. However, what I would like to do and challenge a little bit is if that is all that is said about the gospel, then we've radically truncated the power of the gospel and what Jesus has done. Because the gospel message is more than what Christ does for you and I individually. And to explain that, we need to take a look again at how Jesus talked about the gospel, and the most prominent way that he did that was through this idea of the kingdom of God. In the gospels, kingdom is noted upwards of 120 plus times. Uh, It could be argued that the kingdom is the primary way that Jesus articulated his mission, uh, so much so that even when the disciples asked him how they ought to pray, one of the main things that he taught them to pray was that thy kingdom come. Now, what what does that mean? What is he referring to? Well, admittedly, uh, kingdom theology is actually one of the most complex theological ideas in all of Scripture. Uh, There are countless perspectives on how one ought to uh, unpack the kingdom of God. Um, I won't get into all of them today. However, George Ladd, who's a a well-known New Testament scholar, he wrote this quintessential book, Uh, on the kingdom of God. Uh, And in it, he notes the various reasons why there are so many different opinions uh, about the kingdom of God. And his main argument is really that the complexity is due to the fact that the Bible speaks about it in very complex ways. I mean, that's just really what it comes down to. The Bible has a lot to say about the kingdom of God, some of which can seem a little bit confusing. So just for example, 
Matthew 12 uh, says that the gospel, or I'm sorry, that the kingdom, rather, is a present reality. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that passage tells us that it's also a future promise. So the kingdom is a present reality, but also a future promise. Romans 14 says that uh, the kingdom is a spiritual redemptive blessing that John 3 says can only be experienced in the new birth. But then Revelation 11 tells us that the kingdom has something to do with the government of the nations of the world. Uh, Matthew 21 tells us that it is a realm that people can enter into now, but Matthew 8 says that it's something that we will enter tomorrow. Luke 12 says that it's a gift of God bestowed in the future, and yet Mark 10 tells us that it's a gift that we receive in the present. I mean, it's confusing. So what do we do with these teachings that are at best confusing and at worst seem to be contradictory? Well, to help understand what the kingdom of God is, uh, theologians have articulated um, several things, essentially distilling much of the teachings of the kingdom of God by noting really a couple universal things that we can understand about the kingdom of God. Uh, The first being this, that there is this theological concept uh, called the already not yet. The idea being with that theological concept is to say that the kingdom of God has come already in Jesus, but that the kingdom of God has not yet come in its fullest, and it will come in its fullest when Jesus comes again. Okay, so pin that for a second. You've got the already, not yet. Uh, the second thing that's important to note about the kingdom of God is that both in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and in the Greek of the New Testament, the word kingdom is primarily defined as the rank or the authority, or the sovereignty exercised by a king. That is to say that the gospel, or the gospel, the kingdom of God, is not so much a realm or a place, but rather it's referencing the rule or the reign or the authority of the king. Now, Jesus uh, helps us understand this a little bit in a really perfect example uh, in a parable that he tells in Luke 19 where Jesus tells of a nobleman who left his servants uh, in order to do what the Greek literally reads, uh, receive a kingdom. But then it would go on to say that he would return and he would rule over his servants. But what's interesting about the passage is that he had not gone away to receive a territory or a realm, but rather he'd gone away to receive authority to rule. Now, that's why the the New International Version, if you have that version and you're going to look this passage up in Luke 19, it says that he went to have himself appointed as king. Now, here's why all this is important for us in relation to understanding the work of Jesus. That the work of Jesus, as defined by Jesus in his constant referring to the kingdom, is that he rules, that he reigns, and that he has authority as a king. This is what the New Testament writers over and over we're saying about the gospel, that Jesus rules. And that, that authority, that that rule, it exists now, but that rule and that authority will one day be seen and experienced in its fullest when he returns again. And that though he may not be physically present with us now, that does not mean he has any less authority, 
But when he does become physically present, his authority will be far more of a manifest reality. And of course, then our choice becomes the extent to which we're willing to submit to that authority now, even though he's not physically present. There's another really interesting uh, parable that Jesus tells, uh, a famous one. It's kind of the parallel passage of the Luke 19 parable, uh, the parable of the talents. Now, in that story... Jesus tells of a master who leaves and entrusts his wealth to his servants. Uh, the parable speaks of how those servants uh, are then, they then take the wealth that their master gives to them and they do different things with that wealth entrusted to them. Two of the servants use that wealth well and they honor their master by faithfully using that which was given to them. But then there's another servant who does not honor his master well and does nothing with it, but rather tries to protect himself. Now, what's interesting about the passage, one of the things that uh, is drawn out with this idea of the kingdom of God, is that while the master was gone, his authority and his rule over his wealth did not go away simply because he was not present. The servants knew they were fully subject to the authority of their master, even though he was not there with them, and they acted accordingly, even though he wasn't physically present. However, when he returned and he became physically present, the authority and that rule was manifestly more evident. And we see that in what happens when he returns, for he rewards the faithful servants and he puts out the unfaithful servants. You know, just to maybe even put this in more concrete terms, I have two daughters uh, who often stay at home uh, alone. So my older daughter is old enough to watch the younger daughter. Uh, We are responsible parents. Um, (laughs) But uh, they're old enough to stay home by themselves. But here's what's interesting. My authority as their father still stands and guides and rules the expectations and values of the home, even though I'm not present, right? And when I get home... If my rules and expectations and values were not honored, there will be a problem, right? (laughs) My presence, even though my authority didn't wane by my lack of presence, when I return, one becomes very aware of my authority in regards to how one engages these rules, expectations, and values. And so the bottom line is just simply this. This is what we need to take away from this, that the kingdom of God is not something that will come and replace the world in which we live. We don't believe in some ethereal, distant afterlife or some realm that is to come or somewhere that we go to escape this world in which we live. Rather, the kingdom of God is Christ's rule and authority now and his authority that is to come. Now, if that's true then, then to what extent does that authority actually apply then to us practically? This is where we need to understand the scope of the kingdom of God. And this is actually where the church has historically really struggled in understanding how we apply that authority of Christ to the present. Uh, Because for some, uh, the work of Jesus was really only about the salvation of individuals. And again, there's nothing wrong with this. Of course, we believe that Christ saves individuals. But the idea being is that really the work of the kingdom, that the work of the church was to get people to understand and profess that they were sinners, 
uh, then to profess faith in Jesus, and then ensure that they remained in a community of faith. That was essentially the work of the kingdom. But is this what it meant for the kingdom to be made known? You know, this idea of uh, the kingdom of God and and the work of the church largely being about conversion uh, is what some have called Great Commission Christianity. If you've uh, been around uh, us for a while, you've heard this, this term before, but Great Commission Christianity really just emphasizes the need to see people convert. But again, I ask, is that all that Christ came to accomplish? Is that what it means to be loyal to the kingdom, to the rule of Christ? Is that all he cares about? Um, maybe you could tell by the way I'm setting this up. I would say no. I'd say that's not the case, that the work of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, is not only about the salvation of individuals from sin. Now, it is no less than that, but it's certainly far more. And as you look again at how the New Testament in particular talks about what it means for Christ to have come, it speaks in terms much bigger than just the individual. For example, in Romans 8, Romans 8 tells us that all of creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. I mean, all of creation will be restored and renewed as a result of the work of Jesus. And Christianity is not only about the salvation of individuals and individuals submitting to the rule of Christ. It's about Christ redeeming and restoring, liberating the cosmos. I mean, that is a beautiful in grand picture of what Jesus comes to accomplish, that the kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus, is over all things. That is our message. That is the church's message. Our lives ought to reflect that message, that Christ is restoring all things. And yes, Jesus came to save individuals, but he's also restoring creation. Now, this is uh, an actually a pretty unique idea in the landscape of religious and philosophical thought. Uh, Just to maybe uh, give you some pictures of some alternative ways of thinking. Um, For example, in more Eastern thought, a lot of times the physical, uh, the physical world and the pleasures of the world uh, are rejected or resisted. And And to reject or resist those physical pleasures or things of this world, it then causes one to be more spiritually enlightened. And so the goal is always to beat down the flesh and lift up the spirit. Uh, on the other end of, that, of the spectrum, though, you've also got more Western uh, humanistic thought where there's actually very little concern for the spiritual. And everything is about bracing, embracing the physical world. For embracing the physical world is really paramount to the human experience, especially experiencing the pleasures of this world. But what's interesting is that Christianity does not see the body and the physical as separate and distinct or untied to the spiritual. Right? We live this embodied faith. That's what it means to be a Christian, which is why the resurrection is so important to the Christian faith. Because Jesus did not just die and remain a spirit. Rather, Jesus physically, like literally physically rose. He physically ascended. Jesus right now has a physical body. This is central to the Christian's understanding of what the resurrection is and what the resurrection does, that the work of Jesus is not only renewing the spiritual and the soul, but it's also 
renewing and restoring the physical world as well. And the Great Commission Christianity approach, when caricatured, when it only tends to preach the message of salvation from sin in order to save the soul, the spiritual, the consequence of that often is that it really misses the holistic work that Jesus is doing all around us, and it fails to engage issues that Jesus himself would have engaged in order to maintain the purpose of calling people to repentance. And when the church disassociates its purpose from the very real struggles of the world, we fundamentally misunderstand both the nature and the scope of the kingdom of God. And when this happens, it's inevitable that we will allow and even perpetuate all different sorts of social ills and issues. Now, if you, if you know me, uh, you know I, I talk about this quite a bit, but the various injustices that have come as a result of the church not truly understanding and grasping the nature of the kingdom of God and the scope of the kingdom of God. And I bring these things up regularly because as a church, we must be conscious of them because historically the church has struggled and failed to love well and to show the love of Christ well in various places throughout society. And we need to know that we are not above the, uh, that failure. That is absolutely something we could continually fall into when we fundamentally make the kingdom only about conversion and not about the cosmic restoration, all kinds of problematic things can happen. Uh, again, if you've, maybe you've heard some of this before, but Anthony Bradley, he wrote um, an article several years ago uh, critiquing Great Commission Christianity, this idea that it's really about conversion. Um, and he, he said this in this article, which uh, the whole article is really pretty beautiful, but I think he really nails it as far as what the problem, the, the consequences, rather, of what comes through Great Commission Christianity. And this is what he said. Let me just read this for us. He says that Great Commission Christianity doesn't typically preach a redemption of all creation. They never have. Great Commission Christianity preached a revivalistic, individualistic, truncated gospel to slaves on plantations and did not seek to free slaves from slavery. Great Commission Christianity did not thwart and fight injustice, uh, uh, I'm sorry, thwart and fight against lynching during Reconstruction. Great Commission Christianity did not liberate blacks from Jim Crow. In fact, it was the opposite. It was typically Great Commission Christianity church members in the South that fought against the black church-led civil rights movement. Fast forward to recent American racial tensions, and you will find a parallel. Great Commission Christianity advocates were unable to respond well to what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. And I will just also add that Great Commission advocates, Great Commission Christianity advocates, have not been able to properly respond to issues of mass incarceration, immigration, abortion, economic injustice, and so many other social issues. Too often we have failed to address these issues well because, as he would go on to say, to garner participation in social issues from Christians, Great Great Commission Christianity has to justify their encouragement of justice work by casting it through the lens of evangelism. This effectively dismisses the real suffering that comes at the hands of injustice, where conversion becomes primary, and caring for those who are suffering under the effects of sin becomes secondary. 
And in many ways, we have not been able to show the love of Christ well because too often we've kept the scope of Christ's work, or we haven't, rather, kept in view the scope of Christ's work, which is to restore the cosmos. And then he, he ends with this. He says, The kingdom of God is the reign of God dynamically active in human history through Jesus Christ over the entire cosmos. Redemption, then, is God's work to restore the whole creation to himself. That's a powerful statement. That the reign of God, the kingdom of God, is the reign of God dynamically active in human history through Jesus Christ over the entire cosmos. Now this, of course, includes individuals, but it also includes all creation yearning to be liberated from the effects of sin. So then how can we as a church engage that well? Now, so if the nature of the kingdom is the rule of Christ and the scope of the kingdom is the redemption of the cosmos, what does that then mean for us in showing this kingdom? The last thing to consider. I think the best way to think about it is to think about, well, what exactly makes this good news? Uh, You may know, but the gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. And if the gospel message is the kingdom of God, what exactly is good news about that? What is good news about the rule of Christ? Well, I think one of the ways that we can think about that is through the lens of, again, something that Jesus says that I find to be striking in regards to this. Another famous parable in Matthew 25 called the sheep and the goats. And in the sheep and the goats, Jesus articulates those that he would identify as being part of his kingdom. Uh, And in the parable, there is this sifting between the righteous, those who are in his kingdom, and the unrighteous, those who are not in his kingdom. And of the righteous, this is what he says, referencing the sheep. He says in verse 34, he said, Then the king will say, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And here's why he acknowledges the sheep as being part of his kingdom. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, what's interesting is that for some, feeding the hungry giving water to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, looking after the sick, visiting the, prison, the, the prisoner, those are not gospel issues. And yet here, Jesus explicitly makes them gospel issues by saying that those in his kingdom do these things. Those under my authority do these things, and those are actually the places that you will find Jesus working in the midst of those who would have otherwise be forgotten or marginalized. And just as a quick side note, another thing that I find to be particularly challenging about this passage is when I think about our culture and our ability to impact things far beyond just our own, our own worlds. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, at a certain point when we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner— it seems to me that a certain point, at a certain point, we must then ask the question of why is this person hungry? 
Why is this person thirsty? Why is this person in prison? And why, the reason why I feel compelled by that is because we in our democratic affluent society, where we have the ability to actually affect change, I struggle with this because we have the ability to ask those questions of why and then respond accordingly. And I truly do believe that that becomes gospel issues because it's the kind of thing that ought to be done by God's people under his authority. You know, in a, in a democracy and in our affluence, we can ask the questions, well, why do we have such high rates of child poverty and hunger in a nation of the greatest affluence that the world's ever seen? I think we can ask the question, why does Flint, Michigan not have clean water and they're therefore thirsty? I think we can ask the questions, why? Why do we have the largest prison population in the world, most of whom are people of color? Why is that the case? I think we have a responsibility to ask those kinds of questions. And they apply very directly to what Jesus is articulating in Matthew 25. There's a really... Uh, a famous and powerful quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Of course, the, he's the famous um, uh, theologian who resisted the Nazi regime in Germany during uh, Nazi occupation. This is what he said about this idea. He said, We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And I think that's right and that's true. And I think that is not some secondary thing to the work of the church. I think the church who declares the justice of God, who b- believes that they know the true and righteous judge, I think we have a responsibility to make that known. That the good news of the kingdom is that injustice and poverty and sickness and lust and greed and racism and violence and all brokenness will be fully redeemed when the cosmos are restored, when Jesus returns. And if we believe that to be true, how can the church claim to be a people of the kingdom if we don't reflect that coming reality? If we don't work for that, toward that coming reality? Now, I understand that we cannot usher in the perfection of all things. And there's no point in believing that we can or trying, but we must reflect the kingdom by working against the injustice and poverty and sickness and lust and greed and violence and brokenness. This is what it means to show the love of Christ, to show the character of his kingdom, to give a glimpse of what happens when one is under the authority of the king, which is to say that redemption comes. And just get really practical in closing here, just to put this into some, maybe some, some, some ways that we can be thinking about how this should impact our lives individually, but also corporately as a church. So if, if showing the love of Christ is reflecting his character, the character of his kingdom, his authority, his rule, then think about all the different aspects of the kingdom that we ought to then be seen, that ought to be evident in our lives, right? So when the kingdom comes, it will be a kingdom of great compassion, a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of holiness. Should that not then reflect in the way that we live our lives, people of that kingdom? It should be reflective in the way that we speak, in the way that we think, the way that we spend our money, the way that we vote, the way that we interact with our neighbors and our strangers. 
the way that we interact with those that maybe disagree with us, it should be evident that we are kingdom people in the way that we live our lives. And we ought to reflect the, or reflect the character of his kingdom. And so as we think on that, I want us to also just remember that what I've just said is a, is a tall order. That is a big thing for us to engage, which is why it was important that last week came first. It's important that we remember that knowing the love of Christ is the only thing that, is, uh, that allows us to do the kinds of things that I've just said. Knowing the love of Christ must come first in order for us to show the love of Christ well. We cannot reflect his kingdom well if we first do not know deeply the character of our king and his kingdom. And we only know the character of our king and our kingdom because he has made it possible for us to know it. I mean, this is the gospel message as well, that Christ in his life and in his death and in his resurrection makes it possible for us to be part of his kingdom, that we might then show the beauty and the glory of his kingdom to all that we may, to all those that we may come in contact with. I mean, we need to remember that the cross of Jesus, it takes the consequences of our sin and our brokenness. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope to know that everything that we've said about the resurrection of the cosmos and the restoration of the cosmos will one day come. And when we think deeply and we reflect fully on this great kingdom and how we've been brought into it, it molds us, it shapes us, it redeems us so that we can then become agents of this great kingdom. For showing the love of Christ, knowing the love of Christ results in hope and joy. And those are the things that we all need. Those are the things that our neighbors need. Those are the things that our coworkers need. So Christian, if you are here today, know that this kingdom is a kingdom you've been welcomed into by the work of Jesus. And now we are called to now go and show that kingdom, the character of that kingdom, wherever we might go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that... Um, above everything else, uh, that you are a God of great grace and mercy. Uh, in your compassion, you have sent your Son to uh, accomplish a work that we in ourselves could never accomplish. Uh, and as a result of that great work, we have been welcomed into your family. We've been welcomed into your kingdom. Uh, and it's this kingdom that, uh, it's in this kingdom that we we know there is hope and life and joy, and there's full and complete restoration. And so would you give us eyes uh, to see the ways that you are working? Would you give us courage to be in the places that you would be? Um, and would you help us to show the great love of Christ uh, wherever we might go? And as we now turn to your table, God, we ask that this would be uh, our opportunity to be uh, reminded of the great love that you have shown in Jesus, uh, and may it nourish us that we might um, exude your grace in all things. In Jesus' name.